You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brandon Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we welcome two guests who are both experts in fighting denialism, Sergei Romanov and Nicholas Terry. We'll be talking about denialists like Grover Fur and other Stalinists who denied that the Soviet Union was responsible for the K-10 massacre. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit marxisthumanistinitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking with Nicholas Terry and Sergei Romanov about denialism. But first, as we do in every episode, Andrew and I will take a few minutes to talk about some current events. Today is November 16th. The dust is still settling from last week's midterm elections in the United States, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. In addition, last night on Tuesday, November 15th, Donald Trump announced his candidacy for president two years from now. So everyone is talking about what Republicans' bad performance in the midterms means for the future of the Republican Party and for the future of America. Pretty decisively, Trump's uh, influence the, was bad for a lot of candidates across the board in elections last week. MAGA candidates, Trumpite candidates fared uh, pretty poorly and led to a surprising amount of victories for Democrats. This includes uh, not only Democrats keeping the Senate and maybe even potentially picking up a seat in the Senate, but all of the election-denying Trumpite uh, candidates running for secretaries of state and battleground states lost their uh, runs. Uh, and governor. And and governor. <clears throat> yeah. And the, the only one I think that's still perhaps alive is uh, there's a, a Trump-endorsed attorney general candidate in Arizona. There's just less than a thousand points separates the, the two candidates there. And, you know, the attorney general is important in administration of elections. But other, other than that, there was a, a clear repudiation of the people who want to sabotage elections uh, across the board. Um, here in Pennsylvania, where I live, votes shifted toward uh, the Democrats all across the state. Even in deep red counties, there was a shift away from Republicans toward the Democrats. The PA House of Representatives, the state house, is still uncalled. There are two races left uncalled, but there's a very strong chance that the Democrats might take the state house for the first time in like a decade and a half. So given the headwinds Democrats were up against with Joe Biden's low approval ratings and inflation and the general midterm effect uh, against the incumbent party, this was really surprising results. Yeah, I mean, partly it was surprising because the polls were telling us the opposite, but that's like the aggregation of polls. Some of those were very bad partisan polls. Polling now is just, it's that kind of thing where it depends on who's willing to talk to pollsters, and most people aren't. And so there, there were signs that this wasn't going to go the Republicans' way, that it was much, much tighter than, than the polls were indicating. But that was I mean, partly what I'm saying is partly this is, is a surprise because of what we came to expect on the run-up to, to Election Day. In retrospect, when we look at it, some of this is not a surprise. I mean, just Trumpism is, is, is not that popular. Trump himself lost the popular vote twice. They screwed up in the last uh, midterm election. They did very poorly in 2018. And we already had indications of the, the importance of the front lash against the abortion decision when in Kansas, of all places, voters re rejected uh, a referendum that would have, you know, outlawed abortion there or allowed the, the state to outlaw abortion there. And we saw a lot of that pro-abortion uh, sentiment and, and people even coming out and voting specifically on the issue of abortion. Over a quarter of the, the people who came out to vote said that that was the, their number one issue. Uh, and that was particularly true of, of young women, not surprisingly. What, what was it? There were five, yeah, there were five states where abortion was a referendum issue. I mean, although the exact nature of the referendum issue was different in each case, the anti-abortion side lost in every case, including Republican states like, like Montana. 
But here's the problem for Republicans, not that I need to worry myself with the Republicans' problems, but just to understand the dynamic, a lot of these MAGA candidates perform very well in the primaries, but they don't have that crossover that they can perform well in the uh, November elections because they have to go beyond the MAGA base. They need to pick up um, moderate Republicans, traditional Republicans, independent voters, and they seem to have a very difficult time convincing those people to vote for them. Yeah, I think that this was one of the big, big takeaways from, from this election is peeling off of a sliver, but in a tight environment like we have, a sliver is important, a sliver of Republicans and of conservative-ish independents, unaffiliated voters. And they're upset about the in inflation and they don't like LGBTQ rights and all kinds of stuff. But they still voted against the, the Republicans on the grounds that, like, these MAGA candidates are too extreme. And, and that kind of wraps up together, you know, what people were calling the concern about democracy being lost, which, when it was posed that way, didn't kind of get a rise. But you wrap that up with the January 6th, the abortion, just the, the, the craziness coming out of the mouths of a lot of people like Mastriano and Carrie Lake, etc., etc., so there was a segment of right-leaning voters who just said, no, you know, that's a bridge too far. So what that means is Republicans can't win with Trump. They can't win without Trump. As you were saying, they can't win. The, you can't win the primaries without Trump. And there's no doubt that Trumpism has energized a base, part of which didn't come out and vote in elections prior to 2016. A lot of people who didn't uh, vote for the establishment Republicans, now they come out and vote and they're in Trump's camp. So they they can't win uh, without Trump, but then they can't win with Trump because of the front lash that this creates uh, on the other side. This is not a reason to breathe a sigh of relief except to you know, get your breath for, for the, the battles ahead, because when you have a party that cannot win elections, or only rarely, and is, is things are going against it, and you got like Christian fascists like Mastriano, etc., etc., people who do not accept democratic rule, you know, the small d democracy rule, you know, they're, they're fascists, they want uh, a the theocracy, when they can't win by democratic means, and they don't really believe in accepting it what's left we know, we know what's left right so we know where where they're heading we know the the inexorable logic of where they have to go unless they give up all pretense of gaining power which uh, it doesn't look like we're, we're near that yet so we, we got to be ready for huge battles ahead well i am also curious about what lessons democrats will take from this election the i mean i've been i was <laughs> I was worrying about John Fetterman's campaign in Pennsylvania this whole year, and I worry that it's going to lead to some experimentation with like sort of this vapid populism. I mean, Fetterman's campaign mostly, mostly consisted of wearing a hoodie, acting like a Yahoo from the sticks, and trolling Oz for being an elitist. And for you preferring crudités to veggie trees. Veggie plate, yeah. Yeah. You know, it was very amusing. It was like good made-for-TV, like Senate showdown, but there was like nothing substantive. And people give him credit for not just focusing on the cities and having this like every county, every vote theme and really reaching out to rural Pennsylvanians. Uh, and we did see a shift, like I said, toward the Democrats in rural Pennsylvania. But I... You know, I have a lot of trepidation about um, the takeaway being that we need to like somehow cater to the more reactionary parts of our society with like vapid populism and not really address like the issues of the democratic base. You know, in Pennsylvania, you could easily be very competitive as a Democrat just by focusing on Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and getting out the black vote and speaking to the issues that are important to black voters in the big cities. But it didn't seem like that was Fetterman's approach. Instead, it was sort of like this rural populist, like completely vapid Twitter-based thing. It's almost like appealing to this notion of like the forgotten white working class. Not that that was said in any explicit ways, but sometimes it felt like that was what the, the vibe was. And I worry that that is going to lead Democrats 
to like ignore just addressing the actual needs of their real constituents and base and their their real base and venturing off into these like experiments with like peeling off one or two people from the sticks with by looking like a common man right i mean fetterman has been in doing this for a long time i mean it's his shtick he always he always wears hoodies and and shorts and and he's from from a very wealthy family and everything you know so it's uh, but i i don't think this went very well okay i mean apart from pennsylvania i mean you look at ohio tim ryan has that same kind of like let's appeal to the bread and butter issues of of the population and he went down to a really serious defeat against a born-again trumpite candidate uh, jd vance who had no business running for for, for anything wasn't even close in in ohio so th- that doesn't do so well. And then you get like Bernie Sanders prophetic uh, article in the, the Guardian, right? A few weeks before the election, like, well, we shouldn't go all in on uh, defending abortion because what we need to do is, you know, speak to the bread and butter uh, economic concerns <laughs> of Americans. Oh, right? I didn't even see that. He wrote that? Oh, yeah. yeah oh, man, we yeah, should have talked about that. And it got a lot of correct derision because, first of all, if abortion you don't think of it as an economic issue it's like what planet are you living on guy yeah so so that's what he i mean he 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 couched oh i've always been in favor of abortion and i've voted for every abortion related thing blah 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 but we have to not just speak about abortion but about the economic concerns and i mean that sounds good but there was no candidate out there who only talked about abortion and nothing else right but i think the clear takeaway this was a, a an election fought on the margins but the clear takeaway is the front lash against the repeal of roe v wade performed very well because it performed of course very well with the, the democratic base which came out and especially young women came out and they they voted to protect abortion rights but this sliver of people independents and even republicans who broke away from uh, the gop and said this mag extremism which includes the abortion stuff and includes all these other quote social issues or culture war issues the whole package there's been a shift away from that i i think that that kind of message that that sanders was was running isn't going to play very well from now on well we could say a lot more about this obviously but we're going to have to leave it leave it at that uh, up next our conversation with sergey romanov and nicholas terry about stalinist apologists and k-10 denial we are pleased today to welcome two guests to the podcast, Sergei Romanov and Nicholas Terry. Sergei and Nicholas are longtime collaborators on a website called Holocaust Controversies. It's a website that combats Holocaust denialism. And also, uh, adjacent to that, denialism about the K-10 massacre, which occurred during World War II, and sometimes even denialism around other Stalinist atrocities. In fact, Sergei also operates a second website called the K-10 Files, which specifically combats denialism around the K-10 massacre. Of course, the issues of denialism and post-truth have been frequent topics on our podcast, and we've discussed them with a number of guests over the years. Of specific interest to us has been combating the rise of tankyism or neo-Stalinism and its relationship to denialism around the crimes of the Stalin period. We've devoted several episodes to critiquing the claims of the Stalinist apologist Grover Fur, and that's something we're going to get into today because Sergei Romanov has actually had several debates with Grover Fur around the K-10 massacre. So Sergei Romanov and Nicholas Terry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Let me just give a quick bio for both of you. Uh, and then we'll get more into the details of who you are and what you do as we start to talk about your your website. Sergei Romanov has been a researcher of Holocaust and K-10 denial for over 20 years. He's originally from Russia, and he's done archival research on both topics in uh, Russian and European archives. He's a longtime contributor to the Holocaust Controversies website, which he's a co-founder of. He co-edited a Russian academic documentary collection about the Treblinka extermination camp, 
And he's been very a- active on his own site, also called the K10 Files, that specifically rebuts denialists around the the K10 massacre. And Nicholas Terry is a historian of the Holocaust in Eastern Europe, and he's at Exeter, and is also a specialist in Holocaust denial and one of the founders of the Holocaust denial blog. So maybe we could just start with the the website Holocaust Controversies. How did this website come about, and how did you both get involved in that project? Maybe Nicholas Terry, you could start off. Yeah, well, actually, it dates back to, I think, March 2006, and I was literally waiting for my PhD viva at that, in that uh, winter, and I stumbled across Holocaust denial online, having been researching the German occupation of Russia. And I was looking around for things regarding Auschwitz. And of course, back then, the Google search results kind of put denial uh, results quite high. One thing led to another. I came across various internet forums where deniers were being debated by critics of denial, including Sergei and several of most, pretty much all of the other contributors to the Holocaust Controversies blog. And so actually, I literally set it up and then promptly invited everybody to sort of join in. And so that basically got the ball rolling. You know, we've been doing that for obviously, what now, 18 years. There's things to say about the prevalence of actual Holocaust denial. Maybe it's, you know, maybe not as prevalent as it perhaps was in the in the 2000 2010s, but it's still there. And from an early stage, Sergei was blogging about um, apologists for Stalinism already in 2006. So it's always been a theme um, in, in the blog. So, so that's really how it got started. And Sergei Romanov, how did this get started for you? It uh, was around 1999, 2000, <coughs> when I first encountered Holocaust denial and cutting denial. I was new to the internet. Uh, I was browsing around the English language websites, and uh, naturally, I also encountered the NISCOR project and the Holocaust uh, History Project. Those are very good uh, websites, classic websites with rebuttals, debunkings of the most famous uh, Holocaust denial arguments up to that point in time. And uh, basically, I was interested in all things skeptical, be it ancient, aliens, psychics, uh, whatever, everything to do with Skeptical Inquirer, you know, this uh, online magazine. But, uh, one part of it was this uh, historical revisionism, so to say. Uh, that's how I got introduced to the topic. So it's uh, now hard to say where I first began to debate the deniers. It was probably in the Russian networks, not necessarily the internet, uh, but uh, the modem-based networks, like uh, phone-based, modem-based. Then uh, those were, I think, Yahoo mailing lists, where I met Hans Metzner, one of our co-bloggers, whom I also know personally. Uh, And then we met at this forum, where really, as Nick said, deniers and anti-deniers were debating each other. It was, uh, I think, real open debate on Holocaust, Rodo, so so was the name of the forum. The original forum is long dead. There are some new forums with that name, but it's no longer there. Basically, that was the introduction to the whole topic um, through the internet. Well, Sergey, I first came across you because I was looking on the online for instances of people who had critiqued or debated the Stalinist apologist Grover Fur, and I found that you have had several back and forth with Fur around his denial um, around the K10 massacre. Now, of course, uh, Fur doesn't deny that the K10 massacre happened, but he denies that Stalin was responsible for it. Um, so maybe you could give us uh, some background. Uh, you know, we can't get into all the details of the debate on a podcast, but maybe tell us, you know, how the debate with Grover Fur went down. And probably for listeners who might not be familiar with the K-10 massacre, I should give a brief historical gloss. Um, the K-10 massacre occurred in April and May of 1940. The Soviet Union, under uh, orders from Stalin, executed 22,000 Polish military officers, police officers, uh, intelligence, uh, prisoners of war, etc. 
Many of the bodies were buried in mass graves, some of them in the K-10 forest, hence the name the K-10 Massacre. And many of these mass graves were discovered by the Nazis about a year later in the war. Uh, the Soviets never claimed responsibility for the massacre. They claimed that the Nazis had been responsible for it. But So with that context, Sergei, tell us about your back and forth with Grover Fur about this. So it was around 2007. Grover Fur began to discuss the topic of cutting. And by the way, I will be uh, say, uh, saying, pronouncing it in the Russian way, cutting, cutting, yeah, but you don't have to, but uh, it's like the way I want to. And actually, uh, also in Russia, we have uh, two ways to pronounce it. The uh, native Smolensk way, it's cutting with the emphasis on the first syllable and cutting with the emphasis on the uh, second syllable. It's like most Russians say it, but. The Smolensk, Smolensk people always say, oh, it's false, it's false, but nevertheless. So Grover Fur was uh, trying to discuss the is issue of cutting in these uh, scholarly mailing list, H Russia. It was an interesting medium to see different perspectives, uh, like around 2006, 2007. And he basically expressed his skepticism in cutting. And he, he told some professor, I think, you don't really know what happened there. You may think you know, but you don't really know it. It's all a matter of interpretation. The evidence is weak. And he at some points that his thought proved that the evidence, the documentary evidence uh, and uh, whatever else was weak. I immediately saw when I read this exchange that he was making basic mistakes in chronology. Just uh, to give you one example of what he was writing there, just to explain, uh, he is disputing the authenticity of the main cutting documents like uh, the Stalin order to shoot the Polish prisoners of war. So he's saying they were announced five years before they were published. And uh, I'm like, eh, how can that be possible? Because they were announced in uh, 1992 and they were also published in 1992. And so I collected a couple of points and then I wrote to Fur directly. And I presented these different points and he tried to engage in some ad hominem. Are you the Sergei Romanov who wrote this and this review of this and this book? But I was, I didn't let myself get diverted to these subtopics. I did respond to them, but I wanted to hear from Grover why did he write all these basic stuff? Why, why did he get it wrong? chronologically, content-wise, whatever. And these discussions, that is quite long. I can't really sum it up in a few words. But yes, it's all about the cutting documents. This is quite illuminating, I find. And I put it up on our blog. It's a little bit too general the way I describe it, because unless you really read this exchange, and I understand that it's a little bit too technical, you really won't get the point of the exchange. But but the point is, Grover Fur made many basic mistakes uh, during this exchange. The mistakes that no self-respecting researcher would have made, I think. That's my opinion. Can I uh, intervene with a question? Uh, were these, let's say, just mistakes due to carelessness or ignorance? Or was there some political or historical tendency to the mistakes such that they altered or you know distorted the historical record? I do not think it was some sort of malicious intent on his part, at least not at that time. But his original mistakes were pretty bad, but it's okay. Like we all made make mistakes. I've made <laughs> my share of serious mistakes also in my articles. But uh, it's when he was confronted with these mistakes, he was basically unapologetic because he either dismissed them as mere details or as unimportant and he added many more different false statements during our exchange. That's why I have a problem summarizing it, because it went really in all directions. <laughs> Basically, it was a discussion of the whole cutting massacre thing. Uh, 
got in denial, uh, sources, events, witnesses. One has to read it for himself or herself uh, if one is interested in the topic of cut in denial. But basically, to me personally, just my conclusion from this exchange is that Grover Fur didn't really care about accuracy or about an objective conclusion. Although at that time he still uh, claimed that he didn't have uh, much of an opinion one way or the yeah, other. That's basically, it. he was still uh, he was still. Uh, I, I think it, he was pretending. Uh, I think deep down he already believed that it was the Germans who did it. But uh, I, I think uh, he put up a facade of this objectivity, and uh, you can see it in his books and articles nowadays. He where uh, he basically tries to explain the general philosophical principles like every statement can be a lie and everything. And he is basically trying to launder, to regurgitate the arguments made by other people in a form that is academically acceptable. Do you think he was just looking for someone to test his theories against in private and preparation for you know making his apologetics more powerful when it comes to writing a book about that is very possible because in the first reply to me, he asked me, are you the same as Sergei Romanov who published the review of Yuri Muhin's book? Yuri Muhin, uh, just to introduce him because uh, he is a pretty important person in cutting denial. He is a Russian former engineer who is basically walking and talking freak show. <laughs> there is probably not a single conspiracy he doesn't believe in. He's a Holocaust denier. He's a cut-in denier. He is a Stalinist. He believes that the moon landing was a hoax. He believes that Lysenko had it right and genetics is all lies and so on and so on. And he was the father of modern cut-in denial. And basically, what you see in uh, Grover's books or in the books of some highbrow Russian cutting deniers are the arguments that uh, Yuri Muhin first introduced, more or less. It's the laundering of these arguments because uh, people like Grover, they, I think, more or less understand that Muhin, due to his style, like he, I apologize in advance for using this word, but like he uses the word kike in his books. Yeah, but yes, uh, it's pretty extreme. And naturally, you can't really uh, use Muhin's books directly to convince most scholars or historians because that's burning trash can. But uh, his books are full of details, of numbers, facts, whether they are authentic ones or not. That's another question. Naturally, Katin deniers are very grateful to him for this. Uh, even as they try to distance themselves a little bit from these roots. So you will also see uh, Yuri Muhin mentioned uh, in our exchanges with uh, Fur. He, he asked me whether I was the guy who reviewed his book, Muhin's book. I said, yeah, and I think he saw that as a chance to test his ideas against someone who knows a little bit about the topic. Just to give you an example, I, I will quote Grover about Muhin. You make a number of good points. That part of your article is worthwhile. You don't succeed in disproving Muhin's argument, but you do show it has weak points. That's very useful. That's that, that, that's basically yeah. That's very useful. However, you seriously mar your work by broadcasting your lack of, lack of objectivity through slighting remarks about Muhin and by and by extension, anybody who does not just accept the genuineness of those documents, Muhin challenges, and so forth. You, you do not concede the contrary. Many of Muhin's arguments are good ones too. And that basically shows to me that what uh, the likes of Grover do, they take this original argumentation framework from the likes of Muhin. They try to clean it up a little bit from the bigoted statements, from outright conspiracy theories, whatever, and they coach it in academic jargon, or try to, because if you read Grover Furrow's books, you will see that they are 
not very readable and uh, they're basically some of the, his books are huge block of quotes from other works or from documents that's not how historians usually write books but yes uh, basically i see grover fur as uh, someone who does dirty laundry <laughs> He, he, he washes the arguments of not very presentable cutting deniers and presents them in this allegedly academic form. The, 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 and uh, I began to understand it uh, basically back uh, when I had this first exchange with uh, Grover Fur. So historians pretty much universally accept that the Katyn massacre was ordered by Stalin and that the Soviets carried it out. But it did happen in the middle of a war and was discovered by the Nazis. And there is a whole sort of political story about how responsibility for the massacre was understood and whether there was ever any accountability for it. So that might be interesting to get into. And also, you know, what are the main pieces of evidence that historians are drawing from when they so universally accept that Stalin was responsible for the massacre. So the Germans discovered these graves in 1943. Naturally, Goebbels used the heck out of this find for propaganda purposes, naturally, to split the allies, and uh, he almost succeeded. For example, the Soviet Union broke the relation with the Polish uh, government in exile. Uh, however, due to Roosevelt's and Churchill's position that you can't really get back uh, these uh, Poles, they're all, already dead, but the, but the war is still going on, they decided basically to ignore the whole thing, uh, to bury it, more or less. So... Uh, the Katyn massacre then was discussed during the Nuremberg trial and basically with the sides blaming each other. The German uh, side blamed the Soviets, the Soviets blamed the Germans. They each had witnesses, three witnesses on each side, but the court didn't come to any conclusions on this topic and Katyn wasn't mentioned in the Nuremberg judgment. Naturally, during the Cold War in the countries of the Warsaw Pact, it was forbidden to discuss this topic except uh, to agree with the original Soviet version of 1944 that it was the Germans who did it. But basically, the, any discussion was discouraged. And naturally, in the West, the general opinion was that it was the Soviets did it, who did it. Uh, there was a Congressional Committee in 1952, the Madden Committee, that came to the conclusion that it was the Soviets who did it. Naturally, it had propaganda purposes in mind, but when you read through the volumes, you see that the work that they did was pretty decent, even though not without mistakes. In 1990, Gorbachev admitted that the Katyn massacre was uh, the so a Soviet deed. Uh, he didn't mention Stalin. Uh, he basically blamed everything on Beria and uh, NKVD. Just for context, for those of you who are not familiar, the NKVD was the Soviet uh, police apparatus, including the secret police. And Beria was the head of the NKVD during the K-10 massacre. It was, if I may say it, a half-ass confession. He uh, also did not reveal the documents about which he knew very well that were the top secret sealed documents that included the shooting order itself. It was a proposal by Beria to shoot these Polish citizens and the Politburo voted yes you can see the signatures of stalin molotov and others these documents were revealed by yeltsin in 1992 and have been a point of contention so to say not among the historians but among the stalinist apologists who of course have to deny the authenticity of these documents however these documents are not the only evidence that we have there were excavations. They started in 1991 in Kalinin, now Tver, and in Kharkov, now in Ukraine. They started as small-scale exhumations 
in the framework of the Katyn case that was opened uh, in 1990 officially by the Soviet uh, prosecutor's office. They basically excavated, exhumed uh, a couple of hundred bodies. They only needed to know uh, that those were really Polish uh, prisoners of war, and they could identify them uh, with various badges, some documents that were still on the bodies. And just to preempt uh, this objection, yes, documents can stay so long because under some circumstances, corpses undergo the so-called adipocere transformation. Basically, uh, the flesh becomes transforms into a soapy substance that also happened in Katyn, and the corpses uh, are partially, pa- partially preserved. So basically, the documents that are conserved on the corpses, they are still readable. And there were large-scale excavations that I have already mentioned. Uh, that was 1994-1995 by the Polish teams. They exhumed thousands of bodies, not all bodies, but they exhumed thousands of bodies, and they found hundreds of documents like letters, uh, some diaries, and uh, these documents have been published. I even have a book with uh, color photos of these documents. They're really readable. Basically, all the documents, all the dates of the documents stop in the spring of 1940. And these are really the Polish uh, prisoners of war that went missing in the spring of 1940. Uh, So uh, this is evidence that's basically unimpeachable, unless, of course, you say all those exhumations were fake, like some Katyn deniers do say. I would argue, maybe not everyone would agree with me, but I would argue that it's not the documents these top-secret documents that were revealed in the 90s that are the key. It's not the exhumations, although they are sufficient. It's the fact that about 14,000 people, and I'm talking only about prisoners of war right now because they are a special case, they went missing suddenly. They disappeared from the bureaucratic machine, the Soviet bureaucratic machine, entirely except as people that lived up until a point, and they are mentioned as people that were transported to the NKVD in three regions in the spring of 1940. That's basically their bureaucratic end. You, you have many documents where these people would have appeared, top, top secret documents. There are various lists of various camps, there are lists of Polish prisoners of war, of what happened to them. Nowhere do you have any sign of them being alive after the spring of 1940. That, for me, these missing Polish prisoners of war, that's, for me, the best evidence that they were shot in the spring of 1940, even if we didn't have these top-secret documents like the shooting order. We still could say with almost almost 100% probability they were shot back then, because People don't just vanish from the bureaucratic system. Can I ask a few clarificatory questions regarding this? Okay, first, these were prisoners uh, held by the USSR. So how could it be the case that the Nazis exterminated them? Can I answer that? That's yeah. Because the sort of Polish government exile had already concluded even before the German revelations that the prisoners were almost certainly dead. And obviously the the revelations in 1943 confirmed their suspicion. And that's a very interesting point about how atrocities are denied and where we see a very clear comparison with Holocaust denial, because the the sort of way that deniers work is that they will concentrate on on the sort of minutiae of the positive evidence for for a, a, a claim of a crime. And they will ignore any attempt to try to, uh, or, or kind of dodge the idea of trying to explain what actually happened. So with the Holocaust, you have very, very detailed records of deportations to specific camps. And while we have further evidence of the fact that they were murdered at Auschwitz or Treblinka or other extermination camps, then even if we didn't have that, the trail, the paper trail stops there and they disappear from the historical record, they disappear from the world. And that's exactly the same as what happened with the Katyn complex uh, with the prisoners of war. And, and what's very interesting then is that 
the Soviets went one step further in 1944 by accusing the Germans of, of the crime. They created all kinds of hostages for, to fortune for the future. And Sergei will come back in again because I know he's looked at some of this, this sort of, you know, almost like clutching at straws claims because there is simply no evidence in any of the German sources, nor was it possible for anybody after the war, whether in the Soviet Union or elsewhere, to solicit any kind of confessions or, or, or testimony from anybody on the German side. But the Germans in 1941, as was claimed, had supposedly found these thousands of Polish prisoners of war and decided for reasons completely unknown, they would execute them. Einstein's group of B was operating in this region and, and you know, it, it mentions nothing about them. No other German army unit was 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 involved. Why there would be no reason to, to execute them. There were no orders. So so the, the, the issue among those who deny that the Katyn massacre was perpetrated by the Politburo, Stalin, etc., is that the dating of the murders is wrong it's too early in fact they, they were murdered later and that that was then done by the germans when they took the territory uh, have i got that right exactly and i mean it's a very subtle thing because there was i mean the nuremberg witnesses that the soviets had they both sides had their forensic commissions and it's a great example of kind of baffling with bullshit that, that if you look just at the forensics then Maybe, you know, if you're arguing about racial decomposition all the rest of it, you can fudge things. But that doesn't overcome the fact that all of the documents stop in the middle of 1940. And, and, and on the other hand, the, the, the other problem is that they just they have no evidence. OK, so so let me let me clarify this for people like myself who are confused. We were hearing the dates. But I wasn't getting the significance of the dates. Now I think we understand the significance of the dates. So the correct timing of the massacre is April of 1940, approximately? Yes, yes. approximately. Okay, okay. And the, the, the Nazis gained control of the territory in july 1941 more more than a year later and the evidence uh, from the nkvd and whoever of the, the the polish prisoners that they held that comes to an end in spring 1940 spring 1940 yeah so it's too early so 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 if it had been the nazis that had done it how come these people they disappeared from the soviet records more than a year before, before that Got, okay, I, I, I got, I got the, the, the significance of this issue. Okay. I have one more follow-up question that, uh, about something I didn't understand. How do the documents uncovered with the exhumation of the bodies, how do they go to the issue of who was responsible for the massacre? It's a dating uh, problem uh, because uh, these documents, uh, they are basically ephemeral. Uh, most of them. They are newspapers, for example, that you don't really carry with yourself with yourself for an entire year, more or less. Yeah, We should uh, uh, understand, uh, like there are always exceptions, but if you see a group of people on the street uh, and maybe they are carrying newspapers or some tickets, maybe some letters from their loved ones, they are more probably than not, if you are, we are talking about hundreds and thousands of people, they will have the date that is near, that is the actual date, yeah? Like, nowadays is November, like, uh, we would expect, like, maybe September, October, November, but we wouldn't expect uh, a mass of documents from a year before. Okay, so this again goes to the issue of, of when the massacre took place, well before the Nazis gained control of those people. It's consistent with April of uh, 1940. It's not consistent with uh, July of 1941. Right. I have one more question, which is a big picture question about this. My understanding of what Grover Fur is trying to do is to clear Stalin of the charge of being a mass murderer. And that's because he's he Fur is an arch Stalinist, but he's piggybacking, as you recounted, on this cons Russian conspiracy theorist, anti-Semite. What is that person's motivation for denying that this was a Stalinist operation? Uh, he is also an 
arc Stalinist, so to say. Uh, ah. he, yes, he, he loves Stalin, he loves Beria, he publishes books uh, praising Stalin. Uh, he has some unorthodox views even for the neo-Stalinist community, like he is uh, trashing all the generals like Drukov. <laughs> he hates them, but he also has some views that are probably incompatible with Grover Fur's views. So uh, as far as I understand, Grover Fur blames Yezhov for 1937 and thinks that he was like an enemy of the people. But Muhin wrote that Yezhov was really a good guy who just got carried away or something like that. But it just an aside. Uh, yes, I, I, I wouldn't say that every Katyn denier is motivated by Stalinism although they are most probably Stalinist to one degree or another. Muhin is an open Stalinist, but there are some Russian authors, I wouldn't call them historians, who, who uh, try to clean up his arguments just like Grover Fur does. Uh, they, uh, they, they want to make them presentable to the larger public to, and to the scholarly community. Uh, so what is their motivation? Sometimes it's misunderstood patriotism, like if you blame USSR, you blame Russia. If you blame Russia, you're blaming the Russian people and whatever. That's their logic, not mine, naturally. So some of them think that it's like some sort of a blemish on a country that uh, has fought against the Nazi invaders. Uh, it cannot be that uh, we, we, we did the same things, uh, some of the things. I think they do believe in their own BS. It's not necessarily Stalinist, but it's, uh, Stalinist motivation, sometimes it's just a nationalist motivation, let's put it this way. I should mention probably one little fact. Yuri Muhin, uh, he met with the Holocaust deniers Carlo Mattonio and Jürgen Graf, who are like the superstars uh, of the Holocaust denial movement. There is a photo on our blog, basically uh, them talking about the crematoria or whatever. Uh, this shows how these things are sometimes connected, because like Jürgen Graf, and Carlo Mattonio are basically on the far right of the political spectrum. And Yuri Muhin is arguably far left, but with a big uh, asterisk, like, you know, Holocaust denial. But yes, there are some far left Holocaust deniers also. And uh, how, like, you have this connection between these people. Yeah, that's that's something I was hoping we could talk about more. Uh, I, th I find that fascinating because obviously Grover Fur is on the so-called left in the U.S. You might see him at left conferences. In fact, Andrew pointed out to me that both of us sat on a panel with him years ago in 2007, maybe at a conference. I didn't even know who he was back then. And his group that he's with, the Progressive Labor Party, you might find them at like protests against police brutality or workers' protests or something in the U.S. But his basically his co-thinkers over in Russia are super reactionary. I mean, they tend to be homophobic and anti-Semitic and, like you said, associated with Holocaust denialism and associated with the Putin regime and, like, the turn toward Stalin apologia in the far right in Russia. So I was wondering if maybe you you both might have some more insight for our listeners about like what those trends are in Russia. Like where did the Stalin apologists sit on the political spectrum? How have they evolved over the past few decades in their thinking and in their, in their politics? Um, and what is the cross pollination between the the far right in Russia and this segment of the so called left in the U.S.? It seems very much that even under Putin and, and also especially under Medvedev when he was president, then the, the, the government is actually willing to acknowledge that there are victims of Stalinism. Putin helped unveil a, a, a new memorial in Moscow to the victims of communism. I think it was in 2017 or 2018. A lot of that's been, been emphasizing the victims and, in, and especially in the um, mass graves in Moscow, the Butovo firing range, that was almost sort of farmed out to the Russian Orthodox Church, which is got kind of a part of the Putin regime's kind of strategy of promoting a kind of conservatism by re-emphasizing religion. But one cannot discuss the perpetrators because they are Czechists. And of course, that's the 
these are the people who, you know, that's Putin's circle, the Siloviki, and, you know, they all evolved from the from the KGB, or many of them did. Putin himself obviously did. So that's one side of it. So the official discourse is to sort of a, a kind of, you know, crimes without perpetrators is kind of their preferred mode. And secondly, then, because liberal Russians are still heavily represented amongst researchers, amongst historians, amongst human rights groups, then obviously that's what then has led to the, the major human rights organization, Memorial. It was closed down as uh, under the foreign agents law in December 2021, just before the start of the war in Ukraine. And that was a you know, huge blow because obviously that had, in Memorial had been at the forefront of gathering and preserving so much information about the victims and, and sponsoring research into the crimes of Stalinism. So there's a kind of mix of motives, sort of an anti-liberal motive maybe, and also then a kind of desire to preserve the memory and legacy of the Czechists, of the NKVD, and then also then desire to preserve the memory of Stalin, not so much to sort of, I mean, it's it's more that basically what happened in the 1930s and, and then subsequently in the expansion into Eastern Europe is kind of seen as inconvenient to the myth that they want to convey about Stalin as a great leader and, and the leader of the Soviet Union in its victory in the Great Patriotic War. So they'd rather emphasize the good side of Stalin and therefore that means passing over the bad side. What that creates is a culture where Katyn denial and, and apologism for Stalinism is, is tolerated, even if it's not something where the Kremlin in a circle are necessarily going to care that much. And just an example, Sergei can pick up on this because I think you had interactions with him, but one Russian historian that, that I know from, from my own research uh, from a decade ago is the head of the Historical Memory Foundation, Alexander Dukov. And most of what Dukov works on is looking at Nazi crimes during the war. Um, and, and yet then he flirted with Katyn Denial on a few occasions a decade ago, but then decided it wasn't necessary and he decided not to push it further because it wasn't seen as central to the main aim, which is to sort of essentially demonize the Nazis justifiably, but also to effectively to glorify the Soviet achievement. And also, maybe, Sergei, you can kind of add something about that. What makes uh, this even more complicated, my big article against Katyn Denial, it appeared in a collection of articles published by the Russian Military Historical Society, headed by the same Vladimir Medinsky, who headed the Russian delegation to the Russian-Ukrainians war talks. So one could point to the instances where, where parts of this society engaged in cutting denial, on the other hand, they officially publish an article like mine. The right hand sometimes doesn't know what the left hand does. It's a complicated situation, I must yeah. say, in regard to Katyn. Uh, what I can say, if one day Putin says, I have been deceived, like what I told you in 2010, where he accepted the massacre, as Stalin's deed, uh, I have been deceived by some enemies of the people, whatever, and it's probably a German crime. You can be sure that the Russian prosecutor's office will conduct a new investigation that suddenly will say it was the Germans. And then there will be, will be no more flexibility in this regard. Uh, no official society, of military historical society, whatever, they will no longer allow articles like mine. It was only allowed because it's still a mainstream position. It has been an official position back then, uh, when it was f f first came out. What the future brings, we don't know. With the war and everything, with the Katyn deniers becoming deputies, and there are several deputies who are also outspoken Katyn deniers, like, for example, Anatoly Wasserman, he has been clowning around in his live journal blog with Katyn Denial style apologism, apologetics and whatever. And de deputies means uh, members of parliament. Members, members of Duma, yes, members. Yeah. And then he, uh, last year he became a deputy. What happens now? Yeah, like uh, it's, it, it will be interesting to see because mm -hmm. deputies have the right and the power 
to send official requests to various offices, prosecutor's office and whatever, maybe even ask for for new investigations. So we will see what happens. It hasn't happened yet, probably because Duma is so tightly controlled from above uh, and they haven't given an order yet. When the time comes, you will probably see the whole official positions from uh, 12 years ago completely reversed, like what happened with Medvedev, who was such an uh, anti-Stalinist and who writes crazy messages in social networks right now. Like uh, everything can, can be reversed in five minutes. (laughs) Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Andrew Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing and all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. I think I think there's also a a kind of foreign policy dimension to a lot of the Russian history politics exactly. because I mean, obviously Poland left the Warsaw Pact and of course became an EU NATO member but the Edyev government and Putin at the same time you know were still you know very much willing to cooperate with the Poland with to exchange and release there was actually a release of new Katyn documents I think one year in 2010 or 2011, when I was in Moscow, literally just happened. And they, you know, obviously then they, you know, they they went to the anniversary um, uh, ceremony, which resulted in the plane crash, which obviously generated a lot of conspiracy theories in Poland about why one of the Kaczynskis had died, along with so many other senior Polish politicians in this plane crash. But then when Poland, for example, in the spring was being incredibly vocally in support of Ukraine, then there was a local demonstration. There was a kind of column of of excavators, of diggers, like advancing on the Katyn Memorial, as if to threaten the prospect of, well, you know, we're going to literally erase your memory here, your memorial. And you can kind of see how that parallels the way in which 
I mean, you know, Dukov, for example, is persona non grata in most of the Baltic states because he's been critical of some claims made in Lithuania and, and other states about Stalinist crimes there. And obviously the war, you know, the kind of constant fighting between Russia and Ukraine over the memory of, of Stalinism is is pretty obvious. So it's possible that that in a in a foreign policy context that, that maybe the Putin regime decides actually we've really had enough, we don't care anymore, we're not going to try to be conciliatory. But it's probably more likely that they will stop short of that because they've not yet burned all their bridges despite being so isolated in you know from the rest of Europe in over the 2022 war and of course we simply don't know how the regime is going to evolve in the next year as a result of the of the war but certainly you know as there are more and more people who seem to be unabashed in in, in celebrating Stalin certainly the opinion polls amongst the Russian public suggest that he's considered much more of a great figure over the last decade than, than had been the case in the 1990s or 2000s. And obviously that would breed more support for outright apologism and denialism. And I suspect that's partially why the kind of tankies and the Stalinists in, in the West kind of feel emboldened because they see that, that Stalin is not being regarded as the you know problem figure that perhaps was the case from the 50s onwards in, in the Soviet Union and Russia. You don't have to deny Katyn to sort of hollow out the memory. It has been happening. For example, you might have heard that uh, in Tver, former Kalinin, the memorial plaques were taken down that, that mentioned uh, the 6,000 police prisoners of war uh, that were shot there and were buried uh, in the uh, village of Medne. Uh, actually, if you look at the content, uh, the text content of the informational stands uh, at the memorials at Katyn and uh, Medne, you will see that uh, right now, it, it has been hollowed out, like uh, they have whole sections about the Soviet POWs uh, in, from the Soviet-Polish war of 1920, who uh, died, uh, many of them died in the Polish POW camps, mostly from diseases. Uh, they were not like intentionally murdered, but they are basically mentioned to balance out the Soviet guilt. Like, yeah, you, you, you did it to our people, you, we did it to your people, it's all, all okay. That's the subtext. This rewriting of the memorial history, this has been happening for a while now. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm dying to get into Grover uh, first contradictions about the Great Terror, but we won't have time for that. I, w- I want to say something about this issue of the, the deniers picking at anomalies. I want to try to get at what is wrong with that. And I think the discussion has gotten at that in one way, that they don't make a positive case. But in a sense, somebody like Grover Fur makes a positive case. You know, Stalin was was innocent of everything. It was all a gigantic rightist, Trotskyist conspiracy. Yezhov did this. He, he's got a story to tell. He makes a positive case that way. So the real issue is, I think, how one deals with evidence, okay? And the the problem of looking for anomalies seems to me it's just a species of cherry-picking. You're cherry-picking the evidence. In this case, you're denying that that's a piece of evidence. You're denying that that's a piece of evidence. But really well-known, solid principle of interpretation of historical evidence, of texts, of, of everything, is that the way to make sense of what, what's out there is to interpret the evidence as a whole. The goal is that you have to make sense of it as a whole, and interpretations that cannot grapple with the totality of the evidence, they're not as good as, as interpretations that are able to grapple with the interpretation of all of the evidence taken as a whole. And this is why I think Nick's point about missing persons, where did they go, is hugely important. And this is a point that Keith Con Harris made to us uh, when we uh, interviewed him about his book. And I know that uh, you're, you, Nick, are an associate of him. Uh, he said, you know, when you look at Holocaust denial, 
biggest glaring gap, the, the, the thing that they cannot explain is where did millions of European Jews go? They were there before the Holocaust. There's no record of them afterward. Where did they go? And, you know, there is no answer to, 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 to that. So that's like a, a piece of evidence that is just like, if you can't, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how many nits you pick, how many holes you find in this or that, if you can't answer that question, you can't grapple with the evidence as a whole, and you're just not worth taking seriously, as far as I can see. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think I think there's a interesting set of rhetorical games that get played because the denialists will often attack the conventional story or the mainstream narrative, or even then reduce it to, oh, this is the conventional narrative as uh, portrayed in Sanford regarding Katyn or, or in Hilberg regarding the Holocaust. And, and of course, actually, it's not just Hilberg or Sanford who would argue this. And yet, then then they do have a story to tell, like you said about Farr and his kind of attempt to rehabilitate Stalin. Obviously, he has something that looks like a story, but you read the stuff, and obviously most of what they then write is attacking the accepted version and very little, much less space on trying to prove their own case. Almost all conspiracy theories are the same. So the narrowing down the question of 9-11 to whether fire can melt steel and all the other kind of technical arguments and, you know, ergo, it must have been Bush and must have been the US government or it must have been Israel and it's like just ignoring everything else and not actually being able to come up with your own narrative that meets conventional standards. So if, if somebody can't actually outline their own proper narrative arguing positively, that to me is is a, a good shorthand bullshit test to sort of see whether their claims stand up. It doesn't mean, of course, I mean, it could well be that in some cases there are problems and actually then that requires going off and researching and finding the evidence that supports what really did happen. But until you've got that, then you can't sort of just say, oh, well, you know, this this little anomaly doesn't, it doesn't add up to me, it doesn't pass my smell test and my personal bias, so therefore it's all bullshit. That's when you clearly see the motivated reasoning, the politics of it, that basically in, in almost all cases you can find that they're arguing this not because they're actually interested in history, but because it basically annoys them for some political reason. Well, there are a lot more aspects of this we could get into, but we're going to have to leave it there because we're out of time. But thank you, Sergey Romanov and Nicholas Terry. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. This has been a great discussion. Thank both of you. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies. 